Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. your Bibles, John chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, Just as a way of introduction, um, two weeks ago, um, I preached through John 6 verses 1 down through verse 15. Essentially, the remaining um, sermons that will um, be in John 6 will to some degree have that as the background. And so really, my my hope is that as we walk through that passage, I hit a couple of things uh, more broadly, perhaps at a a a 30,000 foot view so that we can kind of fill them in as we go forward this morning. And this morning, what I'd really like to do is, is deal with a couple of things. Um, you've heard me say multiple times that there are people who seek Christ for something other than Christ. This morning, what I'd like to do first is to develop exactly what I mean when I say that and perhaps give you some illustrations on how people do that. Because I say that, and and I I think that you get what I'm saying, but I'd like to develop it just a little bit more because I want you to be able to see this in people. And let me tell you why I want you to be able to see this in people. Number one, I want you to not be swayed by people who come in the name of the Lord teaching something that is contrary to what is found in Scripture. Secondly, I want you to be able to see individuals who do this that you might be a faithful evangelist to those people. Um, Unfortunately, in our day, we have many people who would profess a type of Christianity that is not the Christianity you find in Scripture at all. It's a, it's a moderate, it is a what many call nominal Christianity. And essentially what that is, is a false Christianity. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is develop that just a little bit for us and really show you an occurrence um, of Jesus dealing with someone, with a group of people who were seeking him for the wrong reasons and ultimately finding themselves not seeking Christ at all, just seeking something that they think they may find in him. And so with that being said, uh, John chapter 6, starting in verse um, 22, is where we'll be this morning. If you would, for the reading of God's Word, please stand. I would remind you this morning, as we sang in that first song, that this is the infallible Word of God, truth with no mixture of error. And so John chapter 6, starting in verse 22, says this, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when, they, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Let's pray together. 
Father, we come thanking you for your word. We come thanking you for its power, for its authority. We thank you for its use, Lord, for, um, to rebuke, to correct, to train in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Father, we come thanking you for that word because, Lord, it is our firm foundation. You encourage us to, as we worship, to worship in spirit and in truth, Lord, and it is our firm foundation. It is the truth on which we stand, and Lord, may it be that we never depart from it this morning. It is in the name of Jesus, and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon in a sentence this morning is, Christ has provided a sign to point us to an eternally satisfying food, namely himself. Let me repeat that. Christ has provided a sign to point us to an eternally satisfying food, namely himself. So we'll deal with that more toward the latter part of this message. But the first thing I'd like to do is exactly what I kind of did as a way of introduction is walk us through um, what we find in verse 23 and following. And really um, just an incredibly interesting passage. Um, And I want to kind of give a little bit of a backdrop here. I want you to remember what has just taken place um, in the lives of these people who are seeking Christ. They're seeking Christ because they have recently sat down with 5,000 other people and had Jesus provide for them in a miraculous way with essentially no means of real provision, just a, a couple of fish and loaves of bread, God, uh, Christ provides absolutely enough food to feed everyone to the point of being filled and also having leftovers. I mean, it's an incredible miracle. And I think a lot of times when we come to this passage, when we come to this miracle, we major on the miracle instead of Jesus' teaching in regard to it. And really what we want to do, do this morning and really for the next couple of weeks is, is examine everything Jesus teaches in light of that miracle. Now consider with me for a minute, if you are a man who has just experienced this, you've watched as the, this guy who's coming, he's teaching, he's building fame. 5,000 people are sitting there listening to him teach, but then they begin to, to, to feast on what he has provided. I mean, it would be a miraculous thing, wouldn't it? You can imagine those 5,000 people would walk away talking about, probably most of them not even talking about the things Jesus said, but more likely the thing that he just did right? I mean, can you exam- I mean, just consider for a minute, you're sitting there and you're watching the disciples take food that, that really should be running out to people and they're, and they're eating to their, to their field. There's baskets left over. As they walked away, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be the 5,000 people who have eaten to the point of being filled, walking away, seeing baskets of food left over from essentially nothing. It would be easy to walk away speaking of this miracle. It would be easy to walk away exalting Christ for what he has just done. And we see them do just that. Notice the language in verse 15. Immediately following this miracle, it says this in verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Their immediate reaction to this was, let's make him a king. Let's place him on a position of high ground. So the question is, why is it that they desire to make him king? Well, let's look at what we find in the scripture. So, Let's read verse 23 all the way through verse 26. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now I want to stop right there because I want you to understand when I say that there are people who seek after Christ for something other than Christ. I'm not saying that they are actually not seeking Christ. Hear me when I say this. These people were actually going after Jesus. They knew where he was. They got into boat. They expended all types of resources, time and energy, making their way to him. 
They're making their way to him because they had seen something that was absolutely incredible. And so let's just ask the question, why is it that they are seeking after Christ? They're seeking after Christ because their bellies were filled. Their bellies were filled. They came because they saw this great miracle and they experienced something to the point where they saw his way of provision. They saw that it was an incredible provision, but they missed it altogether. They missed it altogether. It's an incredible thing that we can look to Christ as our provider and provision and still miss the picture as a whole. You see, everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, everything that's recorded in the book of John is to point us to one essential truth, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have eternal life. They looked at this miracle, and they thought, this man can bring us food. And it's incredible, they perverted the sign to such a degree that they had become completely blinded by it. Like, in, like, a, like, a, like a man who looks at the sun too long and, and becomes blinded by the very thing that gives him the ability to see. The intention of the sun is to absolutely shine light on everything that we might see it correctly. In the exact same way, Jesus' miracle of, of feeding these 5,000 people is not so that they could be fed. It was to proclaim something about himself. It was to mark him as the son of God and that those who were there might see him and believe and have eternal life in him. They're blinded by the sign as a whole. And their immediate response to this is, let's make him a king. Let's look at this guy who's able to provide us comfort in life, and let's make him a great king. And I would like to argue for just a moment that a king of our own making is us as king. They look at Christ and they say, we want you to be king. Why did they want him to be king? It wasn't because they thought him the son of God. It wasn't because they believed that in him was eternal life. They wanted, him to be the son of, they wanted him to be king because they thought that he could provide them comfort and ease in life. How guilty are we of this? We look to Christ and we say, I think there's a means, a way in which we can follow him and be comfortable and have great ease in this life. I want that Christ as my king. This is a theology. This is a belief system that's not founded on the authority of Scripture, but it is essentially founded on our own emotion and will. And I'd like to give you a couple of dangers of that this morning. And I'd like to give you these dangers because I want you to sympathize a little bit with individuals who have been preached a gospel that is not Christ-centric, but is focused on the individual. And that's essentially what we have here. We have a belief system. We have people who are seeking after Christ to make him king because of what he has provided for them. And in this particular circumstance, it's food for their bellies. In our particular circumstance, it's comfort in our culture. We would seek after Christ because, hey, it fits in here. It's comfortable. I was having a conversation with a fellow pastor um, from New Albany the other day, and he reminded me that, um, that when you preach the gospel, people often become a bit frustrated with you, but when you begin to preach what a Christian actually is, people will leave. Because a Christian is one who has set Christ as king, not the Christ that they have created for themselves, but the Christ that is revealed in Scripture. And so what I'd like to do is perhaps give you a couple of dangers of creating a theology or creating a Christ that is not founded in the Scripture and the revelatory truth of God's Word, but is instead created in our own hearts about what He could give us as a, instead of what we find Him actually providing. So let me give you a couple of dangers. And, and I, just, just to kind of make it a bit more concise, I would call this a me theology. 
That idea of making Christ in your own form and fashion is essentially placing yourself as king and sovereign over him. When your idea of him changes, he himself changes. It is a king that is thrown to, uh, to and fro by whatever wind of emotion that takes, that's taking place in your life. And so I would call this a me theology, and I would say this about it. A me theology does just that. It robs us of answers first. It makes us incapable of living a consistent Christian life because the Christian life was never built around you or me. It is built on Christ. He is the centerpiece. He is the centerpiece. So let me give you a couple of dangers. The very first thing that we see fall when man creates the Christ that he is attempting to set as king is a falling of divine justice. When we place Christ on, uh, when we try to bring him down to a kingship that we would have him rule and reign in, the very first thing that dies is divine justice. All of a sudden, everybody else's sin is far more frustrating to us than our own. We look at everybody else's rebellion against God and we say how horrible of a thing, but since the Christ that we serve is not one that, that we bow to, but is instead one that bows to our own emotion, we don't really deal with the conviction there. It's everybody else's sin. It's everybody else's frustration that we experience. And so a me theology first and foremost kills divine justice. And I would argue that the vast majority, the vast majority of people in churches across America do not follow the Christian scriptures. They follow a, a philosophy that has been coined as moralistic therapeutic deism. It is a mean by which we comfort ourselves for the good things that we do and we can condemn other people because we believe in a God, a being of power and authority, but his justice is not actually sovereign and his justice is not actually sound and still and immutable. The first thing that has to fall is God's divine justice. This is the danger of a me theology because if it's all about me, I can't be condemned. I can't see my own sin. So uh, divine justice must fall. Second thing a me theology does is it exalts man to king. And, and it, by necessity, it means that we, we make Christ subservient to us, that he is a means by which we serve ourselves. This is the single most disgusting thing that has been birthed out of any false theology is that we make Christ our servant. And friends, let me be honest with you. We see him as he is here on the earth, washing the disciples' feet. Friends, absolutely, Christ has made himself a servant, but he is not one that must bow to us. We bow to him and we experience servant leadership, certainly. We see him lay down his life for us and we look to him and say, praise Christ for this is the, the true king that's willing to lay down his life for his people, a true and better shepherd. But he is not one that bows to us. He is not one that we can enforce our own um, thoughts and passions on. We bow to him. He is king. We are under him. A me theology places Christ subservient to the individual. He must serve us in whatever way we see fit. And that's why these individuals were seeking him. They were seeking him because they knew that he could provide for them food. They knew that if they went to him, then perhaps again, he would ask them to sit and he would provide for them all the food they needed for the day. They would watch him do something great and they would find their bellies filled and their life made with the utmost ease. Another thing that it does is it can't answer hard questions. A me theology cannot answer hard questions. What do we do about suffering if our theology, if what we believe about Christ is that he is our servant? That our good is actually his primary goal. And friends, we see very clearly in scripture 
that our good is to be conformed to his image and he will bring about that end. But when we define good, when we define what's best for us, very rarely does that line up with what scripture teaches. Most often we must kill what we believe to be good and bow to the authority of what Christ says is good. And what we find is when we are the centerpiece of our belief system, when it's about our comfort, when it's about our pleasures, all of a sudden we can't answer the hard questions when difficult things come. But a theology that's centered on Christ, when difficulties come, we say he's working and moving in our life to conform us into his image. We can answer the hard questions. But should we compromise Christ being the center of the Christian faith and it begin to be us, then all of a sudden all the difficult questions that come pouring in are absolutely incapable of being answered in a consistent manner. Lastly, a me theology is founded in the heart of man and shifts as quickly as the wind. It will change based upon your day. You make the immutable God something that changes with your imagination. It's one of the reasons why, why we find passages or, or commands that make no graven images, essentially looking at the person of God, and we would craft him into some visible form. I think that it is a violation in, in, in my belief system of the second commandment that we should craft an image that looks like the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we don't have his image. He is the image of the invisible God, and we should simply bow to him as that. And not only do we exercise that in our daily lives where we have pictures of Christ and things like that, but I would argue very clearly that we represent that in our own minds and imaginations. We create for ourselves images of Christ that Scripture does not teach. And so when we consider these things, I want you to understand what these people are doing. They are seeking after a Christ that they have crafted. And that Christ is not sufficient for the task at hand. They desired a, a, a Christian life of ease and comfort, and it is not offered. Hear me when I say this. A Christian life of ease and comfort is not the Christian life. But it's been peddled for so long. It's been peddled for so long that the moment difficulty arises, we think we find ourselves outside the will of God. Friends, these men looked at the sign that Christ provided, a sign that was meant to point them to him as Lord, not as a means by which they might eat some bread. And they perverted it so they couldn't even see what it was about. I want to read to you what one commentator said because it was really well put. It said, if they had benefited from the miracles correctly, they would have acknowledged Christ as Messiah by surrendering themselves to him to be taught and ruled by him. Under Christ's direction, they would have gone into God's heavenly kingdom, but they expected nothing from Christ other than to live happily and comfortably in this world. And I would remind you in this moment, should they have seen this miracle the way that it was intended, they would have seen Christ as their supreme treasure and joy and all the difficulties in this world would have faded away in his beauty and his glory. But instead, they saw him as a means to be comfortable here. And like I just said, it, it's, it's not the Christian life. The Christian life is forsaking the things of the world that you might look forward to in glory in the things to come. One of the greatest tragedies of the Christian faith today is we very rarely fix our eyes on the treasure to come. We're always so focused about the little difficulties that take place here that we never find ourselves fixing our eyes on the things that Christ has purchased for us. And this morning, what I'd like to do from here on out is essentially lay out to you the true Christian life that Christ has promised us. I would like to give a couple of things, but first I'd like to say that what we find Jesus beginning to do in this passage is correcting them in a loving way, but also very firmly. 
And so if you would, turn in your scriptures to verse 25. Verse 25 says this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Just as a side note, I can, there's nothing I enjoy more than just completely ignoring somebody's question because it was stupid. Um, verse 26, Jesus answered them. By no means does he answer their question. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus looks at them and essentially says, you're asking the wrong question, and I'm going to go ahead and correct what you're doing right now. You're coming, you spent all this time and energy to come to get bread that you could have bought at the market. I've already provided that for you in a very natural way. If you go to the market, instead of chasing after me that you might have it in an easy way, if you would just go there and purchase it, you would have found everything you needed to fill your bellies. You don't seek Christ to fill your belly. You seek Christ for Christ. To do anything else is absolute foolishness. And so Jesus looks at him and says, I'm going to give you something better. I'm going to offer you something a little bit different. And so the first thing that he does is in his offering, he prohibits something. I love this. I am so thankful for prohibitions on my life because I am a fool. I am so prone to act in contradiction to God's word that there is nothing better than a very clear statement that says, don't do this. It's simple. It's black and white. And Jesus looks at them. Notice what it says in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes. Don't do it. What do we, you think about the labor that one undergoes in their life to work for that which perishes. So let me, I want to break this down for a a couple of reasons. But the first thing I want to point out to you is this is not a prohibition of normal labor of necessity. So I know there's somebody somewhere that looks at this passage, a grown man that says, oh good, I don't have to work for food for my family. That's not at all what we're looking at here. Jesus is looking at them and he is saying, yes, certainly you must work for just the basic necessities of your family. But he's essentially looking at them and saying, it is a prohibition against worldly idolatry. All the things that make you comfortable here, all the things that you feel like satisfy your belly here, understand their futility. Understand that it burns. I love what one of my friends said. Actually, I mean, with almost everything that we would ever bring up that was, that was not eternal, he would just remind us of the simple phrase, it'll burn. It'll burn. And Jesus essentially looks at them and he says, everything that you're laboring for, for your own comfort, it'll burn. It'll absolutely melt away in the light of time. Or even in that great day where he will come and purge this earth, it will burn then. There's not a single thing that is here that is not of him that will last his wrath and fury. And so what he does, he looks, he gives them this grand prohibition. And what's interesting about this is them seeking Christ was actually evidence of them doing just that. They're looking at Jesus and they're saying, oh, you're a means by which I can work for the things that will fade away. You're a means by which I can have some bread for my belly today. And they seek after Christ for this. And it is this grand illustration that you can actually be looking at truth and say, I'm not really interested in the substance of the truth. I'm more interested in the things that it might provide for me. We do this so frequently where we look at the glories of Christ that our heart's desire should be for him. And we're more interested in those moments of not experiencing difficulty here on the earth. And so when, when it really comes down to it, we have the opportunity to follow Christ faithfully or difficulty. And if they should ever separate, If difficulty means you following Christ, you will find yourself bowing to the God you actually serve. Should Christ not provide them food, and we will see this in the next couple of weeks, these men will walk away. 
They will walk away because they bow to the God they served. They served ease and comfort. And when the option was Christ or, they picked the or. Christ looks at them and he prohibits it. Friends, hear me when I say this. This is a prohibition to you. We cannot, Christ has forbid it, labor for things that will burn. We go out of our way regularly that we might satisfy our own sinful desires. Have you considered how frequently we do this? Whether that be being a poor steward of our money, whether that be um, men seeking our own comforts and pleasures, or perhaps even just forsaking the role of husband and father. Ladies who refuse to submit to the authority of their husband. There is an endless plethora of things that we go out of our way to do for our own comfort, and Christ forbids such acts. Christianity is not a faith that allows us to pursue the things of the world. Instead, it demands that we forsake them. It demands that we watch them burn and we smile as they do. The prohibition is do not work for that which perishes. And I want you to hear something in this. Because we look at that and we almost immediately feel a restraint. We almost immediately feel Christ grab us and pull us back from something, something that we love. Let's just be honest, can we, for a moment? Our hearts are prone to love sin. Our hearts are prone to love comfort, even if that is uh, contrary to the thing that God has actually prescribed for us. But I want you to hear the love in this prohibition. I mean, because honestly, we we look at these and and, and any father or mother in here knows that sometimes the greatest evidences of, of your love are things that you forbid your children to do. And here, exactly what we find is Christ looking at his people and saying, do not labor for that which burns. He doesn't want to see them endure the agony of watching the things that they love fade away. He's saying, fix your eyes on me, love me. I don't fade, I don't change. I endure forever. And if you fix your eyes on me and love me, you'll never endure a breaking of that. So we have glorious passages like Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's telling them that there will be a day that all of the idols, all the things that you've set your affection on will fade. And he would spare you of that. Because his love is something so great. He's saying, I am the only thing that can actually satisfy you. This goes back to that idea of having a true and better bread. Their bellies were filled, but friends, they would be hungry again. But the heart, the mind that sets their joy and affection on Christ, he fills you and you stay full. And so what we find is a great evidence of his love. And he brings us to him because I want you to consider for a minute all that these people have endured seeking Christ for just a meal. They have endured a extended walk, perhaps a boat trip, which recently I just endured a boat trip and I would never do that again. Um, It's just tumultuous seas, all of these things they have done to seek him and they're not even coming after him. You're laboring for that which fades. He says, don't. Why? And I would remind you of that sweet passage when we just sang a moment ago, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And this transitions from the prohibition to a positive command. 
this grand and glorious positive command. I want you to hear this in verse 27. He gives this prohibition, do not work for the food that perishes. Notice what it says, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. I want to take a moment, Lord willing, to ease some weight on you. I love the play here that Jesus makes. He says to them, don't labor for that which perishes, but for that which is better, it's eternal, and I will give it to you. Hear me when I say this. If you are laboring for the love and affection of Christ, if you are laboring that he might like you, you are in direct contradiction to his command here. If you are working that he might find a unique, that you might find a unique favor from him, you are working in contradiction to his statement. His statement is, do not work for this. Work for this, but I'll give it to you. It's yours. Not because of something that you've done, not because of something you've merited, but instead it is yours by my free grace. It is offered to them. It is almost as though he lays out two options before them. Labor, work hard for nothing, or seek me and have everything. Should you come to me? Should you forsake all of what you see to be riches of this world and seek me and me alone? Then ultimately I will give you exactly what you seek and I will give it to you in full. Not partially, not a little bit, but the entirety of it. And so this glorious thing that he offers us is a better food. He likens all of the things that these people are desiring to food. And you kind of see this dynamic play out where they're seeking after an earthly food that they know will burn. It will not actually satisfy them. And simultaneously he offers them something better. Now, a couple of questions that we have to ask is, why is it better? Why is the food that doesn't perish better? And I would like to point out two things, first and foremost. First thing, it is actually eternal. It will actually satisfy. I genuinely think Christians do not believe this. Does Christ actually satisfy? Is he actually enough? All the time, I see Christians doing this Friends, I feel myself doing this, of straddling two worlds, of desiring to be satisfied in the things that this world has to offer, all the while saying my full satisfaction is in Christ. If you do that, you are evidencing the fact that you do not find complete satisfaction in Christ. If you look for it elsewhere, you really genuinely don't believe it can be satisfied in Christ. My friend, hear me when I say this, and I say this with the utmost confidence. Christ is supremely satisfying. Whatever the world would afford you here, it is nothing in light of the true and glorious and eternal satisfaction that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is better for he is eternal. Secondly, it is better because it is free. It is free in a very unique way. It is free, but it is not. Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called, uh, called uh, The Cost of Discipleship. And one of the best chapters I think I've ever read, it was The Costly Grace. You see, the beauty of this is the eternal food, the better food is free, but it's not. We look to Christ and we say that it's not about our labor, it's not about our work. And what we look at is we say it's not about our labor, it's not about our work, it's all about His. Friends, the, the food that is offered to us that is eternal is free to us, but it is expensive. It was costly. 
It cost the only begotten Son of God to come, to dwell, to live here on the earth, to live a perfect, sinless life, and then to perish on a cross, to die, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, raising three days later, that we might be granted the righteousness that he built up here, that we might stand before God on that glorious day and we might hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not because of our labor, but because of his. This food is better because it is eternal, but it is free. But simultaneously, it is gloriously costly. So what is this food? This food is, first and foremost, Christ himself. Hear me when I say this. The individuals that were coming after him, should they have actually come after him, they would not have come for food. They would not have come for anything other than the one they actually sought. They would have come for Christ and nothing else. I want you to hear the language that we find in continuing on in verse 27. It says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Listen to this language. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And in this one statement, we essentially see Jesus highlight the actual intention of the miracle. The miracle was not to fill their bellies. The miracle was to show and reveal that he is the exact imprint of the nature of God, that he is the true and better provision, that he is not simply one who can break some bread and put it in your belly, but he is the one that will be broken, that we might have eternal life in him. And so what you find here is this glorious picture of the son saying, the seal that I have, I am the evidence, I am the imprint of the nature of God. I am myself God. You can imagine almost that old style of writing where you would take a seal and you would stamp it over an envelope and it would mark that it was sent from you. This is exactly what Christ is saying. He is saying, look to me, I am the one the father has sent that you might actually be filled eternally. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Hebrews 1 chapter 3 makes that, I mean, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 makes that abundantly clear. And then he looks at it and he says, eat and you will live. Should you find this food, you will be eternally satisfied. Now, the big question is, if all these things are true, what a glorious truth it is. It's wonderful, certainly, that there is a better food that is eternal and free. It's wonderful that Christ himself is that eternal food, but we have to answer the grand question of, how do we get it? How do, we, how do we partake of this? It's not of labor. It's not of my work. I mean, we, we work. We, we think in the means of I'm going to labor for something and I will receive it. And Christ says it's not by your work. It's by believing in me. So let's look at what the scripture says in verse 28. Right, let's look at their question. So verse 28, it says this. And we really see them ask the question I feel like we intrinsically ask. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? says, you must do the work of God, and I will give to you this bread, this life, this, this glorious substance of which I'm offering you. And they immediately ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And then he answers this, this brilliant answer. Verse 29, Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's almost a contradictory answer. What must you do? What must I do to be doing the works of God? Believe in the one whom he sent. He robs them of their work. And, and immediately they become a bit frustrated. And as the story progresses, we find them walking away. Because that work is not something that they can do. It is something that must be done in them. I put it like this. It is a work of God that produces a godly work. The work of God is that you believe. 
And friends, there are two interpretations of this passage, and I'd like to break them apart real quickly. The first and foremost is that it is completely the work of God that the individuals believe. Hear me when I say this. That is absolutely true. It is completely the work of God that an individual who is dead in their trespasses and sins comes to know and believe the God of the Scriptures, comes to look to Christ and say, all of the joys and pleasures of this world are filthy rags in comparison with you. When people begin to seek after Christ for Christ, it is very clear that God has revealed Christ to them. When they see and behold his glory, should they see and understand the sign the way that it was intended, they see Christ and they would not forsake him for anything. So certainly, first and foremost, it is a work that God does in us. However, I do not think that what we find here is a look at or an argument against the working of a man. And that's why I like to send it's a work of God that produces a godly work. Hear me when I say this. The belief that causes you to enter into saving faith is all of Christ. He grants you faith that you might pursue him faithfully. And from that day forward, it produces a godly work in your life to faithfully follow him. And I'd like to highlight that by the many, or the few perhaps I should say, that when the, difficult, the, the difficulties come, as we continue on into John 6, Jesus gives a hard teaching and men begin to walk away. But there are, there are a few that don't. And the reason they don't is because those whom God had birthed faith in continue to exercise their faith. God produced a great work in them by letting them see the true Christ, by saying that he is far more glorious than the filling of your bellies. And from that point forward, they would not forsake him. My prayer this morning is twofold. First and foremost, I pray that none of you feel that weight of working for your salvation. It is a false Christianity. And should you feel that weight, I would urge you, would you come to Christ? He has made it clear his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He requires no labor from you, but he will do a great work in you granting you a faith that is foreign, granting you a righteousness that is alien, that when you stand before God on that great day of judgment, you will not set forth your work, but you will look to the perfect finished work of Christ. And friends, you will be welcomed as a child of God. But secondly, I would ask you to look around your world. There are many that say they follow Christ all the while laboring, they are tired, they are weary. And to be real honest with you, I think they're tired and they're weary because men have lied to them. Would you be gracious enough and compassionate enough to look at those people and say, in Christ there's rest. In Christ it isn't about your labor nor your work. It is about his work in you. And perhaps they will see that they have likely been following after a Christ of their own imagination. They've been following after Christ because they might fit, he might fill their bellies or grant them comfort and ease in life. And perhaps they've even experienced times where difficulties arise and they would gladly forsake Christ for a bit of ease. A true Christianity 
is a Christianity that has God doing a grand work in the individual's life that from that point forward, a godly work will be produced in them.